My Life on the Plains, or Personal Experiences with Indians by George A. Custer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. As a fitting introduction to some of the personal incidents and sketches which I shall hereafter present to the readers of the galaxy, a brief description of the country in which these events transpired may not be deemed inappropriate. It is but a few years ago that every schoolboy, supposed to possess the rudiments of a knowledge of the geography of the United States, could give the boundaries and the general description of the great American desert. As to the boundaries, the knowledge seemed to be quite explicit. On the north, bounded by the upper Missouri, on the east by the lower Missouri and Mississippi, on the south by Texas, and on the west by the Rocky Mountains. The boundaries on the northwest and south remained undisturbed, while on the east, civilization propelled and directed by Yankee enterprise, adopted the motto, Westward the star of the empire takes its way. Countless throngs of immigrants crossed the Mississippi and the Missouri rivers, selecting homes in the rich and fertile territories lying beyond. Each year this tide of immigration, strengthened and increased by the flow from foreign shores, advanced towards the setting sun, slowly but surely narrowing the preconceived limits of the great American desert, and correspondingly enlarging the limits of civilization. At last the geographical myth was dispelled. It was gradually discerned that the great American desert did not exist, that it had no abiding place but that within its supposed limits, and instead of what had been regarded as a sterile and unfruitful tract of land, incapable of sustaining either man or beast, there existed the fairest and richest portion of the national domain, blessed with a climate pure, bracing, and healthful, while its undeveloped soil rivaled if it did not surpass the most productive portions of the eastern, middle, or southern states. Discarding the name Great American Desert, this immense tract of country, with its eastern boundary moved back by civilization to a distance of nearly 300 miles west of the Missouri River, is now known as the Plains, and by this more appropriate title it shall be called when reference to it is necessary. The Indian tribes which have caused the government most anxiety and whose depredations have been most serious against our frontier settlements and prominent lines of travel across the plains, infest that portion of the plains bounded on the north by the valley of the Platte River and its tributaries on the east by a line running north and south between the 97th and 98th meridians, on the south by the valley of the Arkansas River and west by the Rocky Mountains. Although by treaty stipulations almost every tribe with which the government has recently been at war is particularly debarred from entering or occupying any portion of this tract of country. Of the many persons who I have met on the plains as transient visitors from the States or from Europe, there are few who have not expressed surprise that their original ideas concerning the appearance and characteristics of the country were so far from correct or that the plains in imagination, as described in books, terse letters, or reports of isolated scientific parties, differed so wildly from the plains as they actually exist and appear to the eye. 
Travelers, writers of fiction, and journalists have spoken and written a great deal concerning this immense territory, so unlike in all its quantities and characteristics to the settled and cultivated portion of the United States. But to a person familiar with the country, the conclusion is forced upon reading these published descriptions either that the writers never visited but a limited portion of the country they aim to describe, or, as is most commonly the case at the present day, that the journey was made in a stagecoach or pullman car, half of the distance traveled in the nighttime, and but occasional glimpses taken during the day. A journey by rail across the plains is at best but ill-adapted to a thorough or satisfactory examination of the general character of the country, for the reason that in selecting the route for railroads the valley of some stream is, if practicable, usually chosen to contain the roadbed. The valley being considerably lower than the adjacent country, the view of the tourist is correspondingly limited. Moreover, the vastness of the varied character of this immense track could not fairly be determined or judged by a flying trip across one portion of it. One would scarcely expect an accurate opinion to be formed of the swamps of Florida from a railroad journey from New York to Niagara. After indulging in criticisms on the written descriptions of the plains, I might reasonably be expected to enter into what I conceive a correct description, but I forbear. Beyond a general outline embracing some of the peculiarities of this slightly known portion of our country, the limits and character of these sketches of Western life will not permit me to go. The idea entertained by the greater number of people regarding the appearance of the plains, while it is very incorrect so far as the latter are concerned, is quite accurate and truthful if applied to the prairies of the western states. It is probable, too, that the romance writers and even tourists at an earlier day mistook the prairies for the plains, and in describing one, imagined they were describing the other, whereas the two have little in common to the eye of the beholder, save the general absence of trees. In proceeding from the Missouri River to the base of the Rocky Mountains, the ascent, although gradual, is quite rapid. For example, at Fort Riley, Kansas, the bed of the Kansas River is upward of a thousand feet above the level of the sea, while at Fort Hayes, at a distance of nearly 150 miles further west, is about 1,500 feet above the level of the sea. Starting from almost any point near the central portion of the plains and moving in any direction, one seems to encounter a series of undulations at a more or less remote distance from each other, but consistently in view. Comparing the surface of the country to that of the ocean, a comparison often indulged in by those who have seen both, it does not require a very great stretch of the imagination. When viewing this boundless ocean of beautiful living verdure, to picture these successive undulations as gigantic waves, not wildly chasing each other to or from the shore, but standing silent and immovable, and by their silent immobility adding to the impressive grandeur of the scene. These undulations, varying in height from fifty to five hundred feet, 
and sometimes forming a light sandy soil, but often of different varieties of rock, producing at a distance the most picturesque effect. The constant reoccurrence of these waves, if they may be so termed, is quite puzzling to the inexperienced plainsman. He imagines, and very naturally too, judging from appearances, that when he ascends to the crest, he can overlook all the surrounding country. After a weary walk or ride of perhaps several miles, which appeared at starting not more than one or two, he finds himself at the desired point, but discovers that directly beyond, in the direction he desires to go, rises a second wave, but slightly higher than the first, and from the crest which he must certainly be able to scan the country as far as the eye can reach. Thither he pursues his course, and after a ride of from five to ten miles, although the distance did not seem half so great before starting, he finds himself on the crest, or, as it is invariably termed, the divide, but again only to discover that another, and apparently a higher divide, rises in his front, and at about the same distance. Hundreds, yes, thousands of miles may be journeyed over, and the same effect witnessed every few hours. As you proceed toward the west from the Missouri, the size of the trees diminishes, as well as the number of kinds. As you penetrate the borders of Indian country, leaving civilization behind you, the sight of the forest is no longer enjoyed. The only trees to be seen being scattered along the banks of the streams, these becoming smaller and more rare, finally disappearing altogether and giving place to a few scattering willows and osiers. The greater portion of the plains may be said to be without timber of any kind, and to the cause of this absence scientific men disagree, some claiming that the high winds which prevail in the unobstructed force prevent the growth and existence of not only trees but even the taller grasses. This theory is well supported by facts, as unlike the western prairies where the grass often attains a height sufficient to conceal a man on horseback, the plains are covered by a grass which rarely and only under favorable circumstances exceeds three inches in height. Another theory, also somewhat plausible, is that the entire plains were at one time covered with timber, more or less dense, but this timber, owing to the various causes, was destroyed and has since been prevented from growing or spreading over the plains by the annual fires which the Indians regularly create, and which swept over the entire country. These fires are built by the Indians in the fall to burn the dried grass and hasten the growth of the pasturage in the early spring. Favoring the theory that the plains were at one time covered with forest is the fact that the entire trunks of large trees have been found in a state of petrification, or elevated portions of the country, and far removed from the streams of water. While dwarf specimens of almost all varieties of trees are found fringing the banks of some of the streams, the prevailing species are cottonwood and poplar trees, Populus monolifera and Populus angulosa. Intermingled with these are found clumps of osiers, Salix longifolia, in almost any other portion of the country, the cottonwood would be the least desirable of trees, but to the Indian, and in many instances which have fallen under my observation to our troops, the cottonwood has performed a service which no other tree has been found its equal, and that is as forage for horses and mules during the winter season, 
when the snow prevents even dried grass from being obtainable. During the winter campaign of 1868-69 against the hostile tribes south of the Arkansas, it not infrequently happened that my command, while in pursuit of Indians, exhausted its supply of forage, and the horses and mules were subsisted upon the young bark of the cottonwood tree. In routing the Indians from their winter villages, we invariably discovered them locked up at that point of the stream, promising the greatest supply of cottonwood bark, while the stream in the vicinity of the village was completely shorn of its supply of timber, and the village itself was strewn with the white branches of the cottonwood entirely stripped of their bark. It was somewhat amusing to observe an Indian pony feeding on a cottonwood bark, the limb being usually cut into pieces about four feet in length and thrown upon the ground. The pony, accustomed to this kind of long forage, would place one forefoot on the limb in the same manner as a dog secures a bone, and gnaw the bark from it. Although not affording anything like the amount of nutriment that either hay or grain does, yet our horses invariably preferred the bark to either, probably on account of its freshness. The herbage to be found on the principal portion of the plains is usually sparse and stunted in its growth. Along the banks of the streams and in the bottom lands, there grows generally in rich abundance a species of grass often found in the states east of the Mississippi. But on the uplands is produced what is there known as the buffalo grass, indigenous and peculiar in its character, differing in form and substance from all other grasses. The blade, under favorable circumstances, reaches a growth usually of from three to five inches, but instead of being straight or approximately so, it assumes a curled or waving shape, the grass itself becoming densely matted and giving to foot, when walking upon it, a sensation similar to that produced by stepping upon moss or the most costly of velvet carpets. Nearly all of the graminivorous animals inhabiting the plains, except the elk and some species of the deer, prefer the buffalo grass to that of the lowland, and it is probable that even these exceptions would not prove good if it were not for the timber on the bottom land, which affords good cover to both the elk and the deer. Both are often found in large herds grazing upon the uplands, although the grass is far more luxuriant and plentiful on the lowlands. Our domestic animals invariably choose the buffalo grass, and experience demonstrates beyond question that it is the most nutritious of all varieties of wild grasses. The favorite range of the buffalo is contained in a belt of country running north and south, about 200 miles wide, and extending from the Platte River on the north to the valley of the Upper Canadian on the south. In migrating, if not grazing or alarmed, the buffalo invariably move in single file, the column generally being headed by a patriarch of the herd, who is not only familiar with the topography of the country, but whose prowess in the field entitles him to become the leader of his herd. He maintains this leadership only so long as his strength and courage enable him to remain the successful champion in the innumerable contests which he is called upon to maintain. Buffalo trails are always objects of interest and inquiry to the sightseer on the plains. These trails, made by the herds in their migrating moments, are so regular in their construction and course as to well excite curiosity. 
They vary but little from eight to ten inches in width, and are usually from two to four inches in depth. Their course is almost as unvarying as that of the needle, running north and south. Of the thousands of buffalo trails which I have seen, I recollect none of which the general direction was not north and south. This may seem somewhat surprising at first, though, but it admits of a simple and satisfactory explanation. The general direction of all streams, large and small on the plains, is from the west to the east, seeking as they do an entrance to the Mississippi. The habits of the buffalo incline him to graze and migrate from one stream to another, moving northward and crossing each in succession as he follows the young grass in the spring, and moving southward, seeking the milder climate and open grazing in the fall and winter. Throughout the buffalo country are to be seen what are termed buffalo wallows. The number of these is so great as to excite surprise. A moderate estimate would give from one to three to each acre of ground throughout this vast tract of country. These wallows are about eight feet in diameter and from six to eighteen inches in depth, and are made by the buffalo bulls in the spring when challenging a rival to combat for the favor of the opposite sex. The ground is broken by pawing, if an animal with a hoof can be said to paw, and if the challenge is accepted, as it usually is, the combat takes place, after which the one who comes off victorious remains in possession of the battlefield and, occupying the wallow of fresh unturned earth, finds it produces a cooling sensation to his hot and gory sides. Sometimes the victory which gives possession of the battlefield and drives the hated antagonist away is purchased at a dear price. The carcass of the victor is often found in the wallow, where his brief triumph has soon terminated from the effects of his wounds. In the early spring, during the shedding season, the buffalo resorts to his wallow to aid in removing the old coat. These wallows have proven of no little benefit to man as well as to animals other than the buffalo. After a heavy rain, they become filled with water, the soil being of such a compact character as to retain it. It has not unfrequently been the case when making long marches that the streams would be found dry, while water in abundance could be obtained from the wallows. True, it was not of the best quality, particularly if it had been standing long and the buffalo had patronized the wallows as a summer resort. But on the plains, a thirsty man or beast far from any streams or water does not parley long with these considerations. Whatever water is found on the plains, particularly if it is standing, innumerable gadflies and mosquitoes generally abound. To such an extent do these pests to the animal kingdom exist, to our thinly coated animals such as the horse and the mule. Grazing is almost an impossibility while the buffalo with his huge shaggy coat can browse undisturbed. The most sanguinary and determined of these troublesome insects are the buffalo flies. They move in myriads and so violent and painful as their assaults upon the horses that a herd of the latter has been known to stampede as a result of an attack from a swarm of these flies. But here again is furnished what some reasoners would affirm is evidence of the eternal fitness of things. In most localities where these flies are found in troublesome numbers, there are also found flocks of starlings, 
a species of blackbird these more i presume to obtain a livelihood than to become the defender of the helpless perched themselves upon the backs of the animals when woe betide the hapless gadfly who ventures near only to become a choice morsel for the starling in this way i have seen our herds of cavalry horses grazing undisturbed each horse of the many hundreds having perched upon his back from one to dozens of starlings standing guard over him while he grazed one of the first subjects which addresses itself to the mind of the stranger on the plains particularly if he be a philosophical or scientific turn of mind is the mirage which is here observed in all its perfection many a weary mile of the traveller has been whirled away in endeavours to account for the fitful and beautiful changing visions presented by the mirage sometimes the distortions are wonderful and so natural as to deceive the most experienced eye upon one occasion i met a young officer who had spent several years on the plains and in the indian country he was on the occasion alluded to in command of a detachment of cavalry in pursuit of a party of indians who had been committing depredations on our frontier while riding at the head of his command he suddenly discovered as he thought a party of indians not more than a mile distant the latter seemed to be galloping towards him the attention of his men was called to them and they pronounced them indians on horseback the trot was sounded and the column moved forward to the attack the distance between the attacking party and the supposed foe was rapidly diminishing the indians appearing plainer to view each moment the charge was about to be sounded when it was discovered that the supposed party of indians consisted of decayed carcasses of a half a dozen slain buffaloes which number had been magnified by the mirage while the peculiar motion imparted by the latter had given the appearance of indians on horseback i have seen a train of government wagons with white canvas covers moving through a mirage which by elevating the wagons to treble their height and magnifying the size of the covers presented the appearance of a line of large sailing vessels under full sail while the unusual appearance of the mirage gave the correct likeness of an immense lake or sea sometimes the mirage has been the cause of frightful suffering and death by its deceptive appearance trains of immigrants making their way to california and oregon have while seeking water to quench their thirst and that of their animals been induced to depart from their course in the endeavor to reach the inviting lake of water which the mirage displayed before their longing eyes it is usually represented at a distance of from five to ten miles sometimes if the nature of the ground is favorable it is dispelled by advancing toward it at others it is like an ignis fatus hovering in sight but keeping beyond reach here and there throughout this region are pointed out the graves of those who are said to have been led astray by the mirage until their bodies were famished and they succumbed to thirst the routes usually chosen for travel across the plains may be said to furnish upon an average water every fifteen miles in some instances however and during the hot season of the year it is necessary in places to go into what is termed a dry camp that is to encamp where there is no water in such emergencies with a previous knowledge of the route it is practicable to transport from the last camp a sufficient quantity to satisfy the demands of the people composing the train 
but the dumb brutes must trust to the little moisture obtained from the night grazing to quench their thirst the animals inhibiting the plains resemble in some respects the fashionable society of some of our larger cities during the extreme heat of the summer they forsake their accustomed haunts and seek a more delightful retreat for although the plains are drained by streams of all sizes from the navigable river to the humblest of brooks yet at certain seasons the supply of water in many of them is of the most uncertain character the pasturage from the excessive heat the lack of sufficient moisture and the withering hot winds which sweep across from the south become dried withered and burnt and is rendered incapable of sustaining life then it is that the animals usually found on the plains disappear for a short time and await the return of a milder season having briefly grouped the prominent features of the central plains and as some of the incidents connected with my service among the indian tribes occurred far to the south of the localities already referred to a hurried reference to the country north of texas and in which the wichita mountains are located a favorite resort of some of the tribes is here made to describe as one would view in the journeying upon horseback over this beautiful and romantic country to picture with the pen those boundless solitude so silent that their silence alone increases their grandeur to gather inspiration from nature and to attempt to paint the scene as my eye beheld it is a task before which a much readier pen than mine might well hesitate it was a beautiful and ever-changing panorama which at one moment excited the beholder's highest admiration at the next impressed him with speechless veneration approaching the wichita mountains from the north and after the eye has perhaps been wearied by the tameness and monotony of the unbroken plains one is gladdened by the relief which the sight of these picturesque and peculiarly beautiful mountains affords here are to be seen all the varied colors which Beierstadt and church endeavor to represent in their mountain scenery a journey across and around them on foot and upon horseback will well repay either the tourist or artist the air is pure and fragrant and as exhilarating as the purest of wine the climate entrancingly mild the sky clear and blue as the most beautiful sapphire with here and there clouds of rarest loveliness presenting to the eye the richest commingling of bright and varied colors delightful odors are constantly being wafted by while the forest filled with the mocking-bird the calibre the humming-bird and the thrush consistently put forth a joyful chorus and all combined to fill the soul with visions of delight and enhance the perfection and glory of the creation strong indeed must be that unbelief which can here contemplate nature in all her purity and glory and unawed by the sublimity of this closely connected testimony question either the divine origin or purpose of the beautiful fulfillment unlike most mountains the wichita cannot properly be termed a range or chain but more correctly a collection or group as many of the highest and most beautiful are detached and stand on a level plain solitary and alone they are mainly composed of granite the huge blocks of which exhibit numerous shades of beautiful colors crimson purple yellow and green predominating 
they are conical in shape and seem to have but little resemblance to the soil upon which they are founded they rise abruptly from a level surface so level and unobstructed that it would be an easy matter to drive a carriage to any point of the circumference at the base and yet so steep and broken are the sides that it is only here and there that it is possible to ascend them from the foot of almost every mountain pours a stream of limpid water of almost icy coldness if the character given to the indian by cooper and other novelists as well as by well-meaning but mistaken philanthropists of a later day were the true one if the indian were the innocent simple-minded being he is represented more the creature of romance than reality imbued only with a deep veneration for the works of nature freed from the passions and vices which must accompany a savage nature if in other words he possessed all the virtues which his admirers and works of fiction ascribe to him and were free from all the vices which those best qualified to judge assign to him he would be just the character to complete the picture which is presented by the country embracing the wichita mountains cooper to whose writings more than to those of any other author are the people speaking the english language indebted for a false and ill-judged estimate of the indian character might well have laid the scenes of his fictitious stories in this beautiful and romantic country it is to be regretted that the character of the indian as described in cooper's interesting novels is not the true one but as emerging from childhood into the years of a mature age we are often compelled to cast aside many of our earlier illusions and replace them by beliefs less inviting but more real so we as a people with opportunities enlarged and facilities for obtaining knowledge increased have been forced by a multiplicity of causes to study and endeavor to comprehend thoroughly the character of the red man so intimately has he become associated with the government as ward of the nation and so prominent a place among the questions of national policy does the much mooted indian question occupy that it behooves us no longer to study this problem from works of fiction but to deal with it as it exists in reality stripped of the beautiful romance with which we have been so long willing to envelop him transferred from the inviting pages of the novelist to the localities where we are compelled to meet with him in his native village on the warpath and when raiding upon our frontier settlements and lines of travel the indian forfeits his claim to the appellation of the noble red man we see him as he is and so far as all knowledge goes as he ever has been a savage in every sense of the word not worse perhaps than his white brother would be similarly born and bred but one whose cruel and ferocious nature far exceeds that of any wild beast of the desert that this is true no one who has been brought into intimate contact with the wild tribes will deny perhaps there are some who as members of peace commissions or as wandering agents of some benevolent society may have visited these tribes or attended with them at councils held for some pacific purpose and who by passing through the villages of the indian while at peace may imagine their opportunities for judging of the indian's nature all that could be described but the indian while he can seldom be accused of indulging in a great variety of wardrobe 
can be said to have a character capable of adapting itself to almost every occasion. He has one character, perhaps his most serviceable one, which he preserves carefully, and only airs it when making his appeal to the government or its agents for arms, ammunition, and license to employ them. This character is invariably paraded, and often with telling effect, when the motive is a peaceful one. Prominent chiefs invited to visit Washington invariably don this character, and in their talks with the Great Father and other less prominent personages, they successfully contrived to exhibit but this one phrase. Seeing them under these or similar circumstances only is not surprising that by many the Indian is looked upon as a simple-minded son of nature, desiring nothing beyond the privilege of roaming and hunting over the vast unsettled wilds of the West inheriting and asserting but few native rights, and never trespassing upon the rights of others. This view is equally erroneous with that which regards the Indian as a creature possessing the human form, but divested of all other attributes of humanity, and whose traits of character, habits, modes of life, disposition, and savage customs disqualify him from the exercise of all rights and privileges even those pertaining to life itself. Taking him as we find him, at peace or at war, at home or abroad, waiving all prejudices, and laying aside all partiality, we will discover in the Indian a subject for thoughtful study and investigation. In him we will find the representative of a race whose origin is, and promises to be, a subject forever wrapped in mystery, a race incapable of being judged by the rules or laws applicable to any other known race of men, one between which and civilization there seems to have existed from time immemorial, a determined and unceasing warfare, a hostility so deep-seated and inbred with the Indian character, that in the exceptional instances where the modes and habits of civilization have been reluctantly adopted, it has been at the sacrifice of power and influence as a tribe, and the more serious loss of health, vigor, and courage as individuals. End of chapter 1